0: Hi, this is Joe Satriani, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks.
1: Hello, everyone. This is your bass player Billy Sheehan from the Day Dogs. you your Iron City Rocks. Hey, folks. This is Steve By, and you're
0: listening to Iron City Rocks. So turn it up. Oh!
2: Hello and welcome to episode 291 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 291, we've checked off another one on our wish list. We are joined by the one and only bassist extraordinaire Stuart Ham. Stuart has played with Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, Billy Sheehan, Alex Skolnick, just to name a few, uh, and it's really exciting. To have an opportunity to have such a fine musician on the show, uh, Stewart has a great new uh, album called *The Book of Lies* that came out in 2015. Uh, you can get that on CD, baby. It's available on Amazon as an MP3 purchase. Uh, he just did a couple shows, uh, solo shows, in the uh, Midwest and uh, Colorado, and he's going to be heading and doing some shows uh, through Ohio, Indiana, Illinois with the Stewham Band, which does feature Alex Skolnick of Testament and Joel Taylor. I'm gonna be doing some shows just in the early part of December and then out on the west coast uh, right after the new year getting ready for NAM. so uh, really worth getting a chance to see him uh, he was in Pittsburgh I believe last doing the the BX3 uh, tour dates with Billy Sheehan so it was really uh, looking forward to getting him back into town I know in, in our conversations he was anxious to get back into our market as well so we're gonna play the title track from the book of lies the Stu Ham Band we're joined by Stuart Hayes. Like to welcome to the program, Stuart Ham. How are you doing, Stuart? Great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Um, we're calling. You've got a, a fantastic album out, The Book of Lies, um, that came out earlier this year, and uh, you just announced a string of dates. Uh, unfortunately, not getting quite to Pittsburgh, but I believe you're doing a show in Cleveland. So we were really excited to get a chance to talk to you. Um, That's great. You know, we we uh, we love our uh, instrumental music here on Iron City Rocks, and you. Name is associated with so much of that, um
0: oh sure, man. I remember I've had so many great gigs in Pittsburgh. I think the first time we came through was with, with Central we played the old Syrian mosque, yeah, where it tore down on the college campus, and um gosh, we played uh, so many different clubs there it's uh, I think the last time I played there was actually at the hard rock with with b times three the band I had with Billy Sheen and Jeff Berlin, yeah, so yeah, um yeah, this was just a little um Few dates for putting together. I'm doing some solo dates as well, leading up to it, and uh, just sort of staying busy. And um, certainly, hopefully, in uh, next fall, we're gonna do a more extended uh, East Coast and, and Midwest tour. So we'll definitely try to get Pittsburgh involved in there.
2: we would love to see you again. But let's let's talk about the book, the Book of Lies, um, the, the album itself. Um, what went into making the album? It's been a couple years since you'd made a you know a solo album. You know,
0: records are really just. Certainly, just that a record. It's a recording of the songs that I was writing at the time and the way that I was playing at the time. Uh, and one thing I think I've certainly gotten better at through my career is just composing and being in the studio. And part of composing is, is knowing the right guys to hire for the right songs and sort of giving them enough rope to do their thing in. Mm-hmm. So when I hired uh, my Bay Area buddies, Lauren Lieber on guitar and John Mater, on uh, drums for the track The Book of Lies, I knew that John could come up with a perfect funky part that I couldn't quite hear in my head and that Warren Lieber could come up with a perfect guitar part that I could almost hear, but not quite hear. Um, mm. And Chester Thompson on uh, Back to Shabalala and, of course, Calver Hines, a great studio musician I've played with. So I sort of write songs, you know, tended for the guys I'm going to have play on it. Mm. And, of course, the focal uh, piece is the seven-piece suite, uh, for solo electric bass
2: now um, when you're writing these pieces do you come up with just like a scratch drum track and, and just kind of a rough guitar line for these or you just kind of stay back and say here's what I have for the bass what do you guys want to layer on top of that you
0: know it's, it's, it's always different um, and it's, it's funny you bring that up because um, it's better sometimes to not have people hear a part because once they hear it, even if you make like, a like for instance, if I made a bad drum loop and sent right. it to Chetra Thompson and said, here's the song, there's no way he's ever going to forget that drum loop. Yeah, and part right. of him is always going to think that that's what I had in mind when I wrote it. So mm-hmm. they're going to be always influenced by that, which is a wonderful thing about Sibelius they've been working with, which is where you can write all the parts. It will create uh, an MP3 version of the song in time, but without a drum loop so I can send it to a drummer and be completely um, um, inhibited, uh you know to influence us I remember uh, you know I had this band with Steve Smith and Franklin Bali a real fusion band
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I sent Steve Smith a great drummer one of my demos and it had some one of those things that the drummer really couldn't play because it was programmed on a drum machine with like one hand on the tom and the right at the same time and right. he must have spent three hours of his life <laughs> trying to physically come up with this part that was just bad programming on my part.
2: He stumped he stumped one of the greats, yeah. Stumped the drummer, that's right. Yeah. Now when you're working with guys with, you know, like you mentioned Frank Gambali who, um, you know, I think anybody who's ever picked up a guitar is kind of in awe of his technique and his picking and you've worked with Steve and Joe and, and so many other greats how when you when you're doing the bass, do you have to be cognizant of what you're doing so you don't kind of muddy the water for other guitars, you know other you know more melodic instruments, or how do you approach that when writing with other instruments as opposed to a solo?
0: Well, I mean certainly I mean that is I think why um, number one, I've survived as long as I have is that I can really separate those two elements of my playing. Um, and I think it's why I have created such an outlet for my solo playing so Mm -hmm. that I get that, uh, that sort of yagas out of my system so that when I'm playing with the band, I can do what the bass does, which is, you know, unite the harmony and the melody and hold everything together. Mm -hmm. Um, because no one really wants to go see uh, a bass player with a lot of chops, you know, playing chops constantly when the song just calls for nice big fat football notes. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm completely happy you know, the role of the traditional bass because it has so much power, you know, behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Right. Uh, and and uh, I can't say that I would get bored doing only that, but certainly since I've created this other outlet of solo bass playing and other stuff, I get that sort of uh, artistic, um, you know, uh, enjoyment out of the bass that way. And so I'm never in a hurry to, you know, because I haven't played my allotted amount of licks this week. I don't have to throw in <laughs> my mom playing
1: Brown Eyed Girl, Right. Right.
2: Now, when you do, um, like, let's say your solo album, or let's say compared to when you played on somebody else's studio album, you know, a uh, Joe Cetrian or something, do you but, approach, like, how you EQ your bass, or do you leave that up to whoever is kind of mastering the album to, to kind of keep your bass where it should be as opposed to, you know, when you're playing it more of a focal instrument?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that that's really, it's a by-case sort of basis, okay.
2: you know?
0: Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes the, the artist, I mean, now, of course, a lot of times I get hired because people are just specifically seeking me and my sound and what I do. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? So they're very open with, with having me give, um, you know, ideas about EQs. Whereas if you're just told and blind for a session, very often the, the artist or the producer will have their own, uh, ways, their own thoughts about how the bass should sound, you know? Um, and I remember in the Satriani record Crystal Planet, uh, I got to actually, have, you know, a lot of input with John Cudeberti and get what I think is sort of my bass tone. But Joe has a, a sort of a different idea of the sound and role of the bass, uh, and if you listen to, like, the live in Paris, it's sort of like they, they succeeded in making me not sound like me, you know, right. but that's the way they, they wanted the bass to sound as a record, it's their project, so more power right. to him.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, as far as, as gear, you are, do you use primarily your Warwick now, live? <laughs>
0: I am, you know, I've been with Woolworth about three years and I think designing basses is a, is a constant process. I'll be, mm-hmm. you know, retweaking and designing until I take my last breath. I'm assured. But, um, you know, I learned a lot through my years with Fender and with Washburn mm-hmm. and, you know, designing guitars and with John Page in a custom shop. Uh, and it's really impressive what they're doing over there in Warwick. Marcus Spangler is the main designer over there and they're willing to take chances and try things. So, basses sound great. Uh, they're very, uh, more ergonomically designed than, than a lot of, uh, Warwick bases, which is something that I always teach in my clinics and workshops, you know, the physical mm-hmm. aspects of playing, especially as you get more, uh, mature, so we say. Right. So, a lighter and better balanced base is, is certainly, I think, uh, a good thing to play. Uh, and I've got EMG pickups. I've known Rob Turner, uh, but EMG in Santa Rosa for decades and Bobby Vega, We, we tweaked the, the uh, to pickups on them and, first set of GHS Boomers from there in the Midwest, and I'm good to go.
2: Excellent. Uh, do you play round wound or flat wound?
0: Super round wound. I've been playing GHS Boomers forever, uh, okay. and actually, right now I'm um, I'm right in the middle of doing the the next record, which is going to be just basses. So I'm experimenting with like putting you know the flat nylons on the fretless mm-hmm. basses and my like, acoustic bass and just sort of seeing what sounds like what
2: now when you're in the studio or doing session work are you kind of a, a, a vintage junkie or do you typically stick with the same kind of rig you use live you know a lot of guys will go in and pull out bases from closets and cabinets and things like that are you that kind of guy or do you stick with the here and now more
0: I don't really have the money to be a vintage guy to be honest with you that's so, that's so expensive these days Sure. but um, I mean the uh, I, I play what I bring in uh, but of course, the, part of what I take into designing a bass was a, a well-rounded bass. You know, I used mm-hmm. to play this bass called like a, a Klaviky Factor, and it was sort of like an Olympic word. It had a unique sound. It wasn't necessarily a bass sound, so mm-hmm. you really couldn't take it into a recording session because the guy would say, "Well, you know, we want to sound like a J or a P bass." So the bases that I design, obviously, part of what I take into account is a bass that can, you know, with active electronics, can sort of. Be a little more tweakier if I need it But can at least approximate You know, a Vintage J or P Or a Music Man sound So in those situations um, mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can make it sound But having said that You know, when you're in the studio uh, You know, I'll play any kind of gear That just makes the song work Whether it's what I would play live
2: Sure Now, one of the things um, I think that, that first noticed About you And I think probably a lot of people saw Was, you know They went to see a, a show And, and you Did that bass solo and and started doing, you know, the Linus and Lucy kind of thing. The two-handed technique, and you've used that in in obviously more than just the Linus and Lucy. Where did that come from? I mean, that wasn't anything that you know. A lot of people, like Billy, for example, did tapping. Uh, You know, that was very in vogue in that era. But yours is very different. You know, you're doing a bass and a melody almost simultaneous. Where did that come from? Uh,
0: You know, that came from the fact that you know I grew up playing piano. I come from a whole musical family. And I love listening to solo instrumentalists like, you know, Christopher Parkiman or uh, Yo-Yo Ma or Rostopovich. Glenn Gould is my favorite musician of all time, a Canadian piano player. But, you know, I never thought of the bass as a solo instrument. And then on November 8th, 1978, when I saw Jacob Pastorius at the Orphan Theater in Boston with Weatherport, and first time I saw him do that slang solo with the slap back and the harmonics and the distortion, it just sort of, you know, blew the lid off everything bass wise uh, and so I tried to, I tried to adapt some of the my classical piano repertoire for the bass trying to mm-hmm. you know make the bass a solo instrument and you know playing with with Steve at the time we met you know we met when we were 18 year old freshman of Berkeley. and you know there even in the Attitude Song and Eruption there was sort of Eddie Van Halen tapping himself so familiar mm-hmm. with what that was which was a different way of getting this the note to sound which is instead of fretting it with one hand and plucking it with the other, you just tap down by strings, which leaves your other hand free to do something else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so in coming up with these classical pieces and, you know, having the two-hand independence from playing piano, the technique sort of came in itself. And then, you know, every now and then, then I just get good ideas. You know, and I had the idea to do the piano thing, and I worked on it and worked on it, and it was, you know, initially very hard. And then when I learned it, of course, I realized it was just the tip of the iceberg of, only ways to play it, but, you know, sort of the reason why I wrote on a new album, this uh, seven-piece suite for solo electric bass, because, you know, the, the electric bass was invented like 66 or 67 years ago, mm-hmm. and I've been playing bass like 43 of those years, and, you know, I remember seeing, like in 1975, see Larry Graham pop a bass with, with James Brown, and driving to a music store in Nashville, New Hampshire, and picking the bass off the wall and trying to trying to break the strings, and the guy almost had me arrested and kicked out of the mm-hmm. store. And then, you know, I saw Chris Squire do harmonics, and then Jocko playing the fretless, and I certainly didn't invent harmonics or solo bass playing, but I was certainly around in the zeitgeist to the time its infancy. You know, but the, the point is, is now, by the time, you know, bass players are 12 or 13 years old, they're sort of expected to know this whole new vocabulary of bass techniques. So they've got to be able to slap a little bit, tap the harmonics chords, no one did that stuff when I was coming up sure. you know so the seven, I mean it's, and it's amazing how quickly the whole game completely changed you know we're talking about a whole new vocabulary so I wrote the seven piece suite as sort of um, you know performance pieces you know kids who are learning how to play can use it as audition pieces or as performance pieces and each piece is also written utilizing a different technique or strategy to make a solo bass piece interesting one piece is all harmonics once chords, once tapping, once slapping, et cetera. Et cetera. And uh, of course, plug, plug, plug. I also have the new True Fire uh, instructional course on how to play all those pieces mm-hmm. conveniently. Yeah,
2: yeah. excellent. Now the um, it was actually refreshing to hear you say that you struggled with Linus and Lucy because I know uh, even trying to just do that on a guitar, I struggled mercifully uh, trying to do that. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned about piano because that was kind of where my head went because I had I had thought you'd play piano at one point and that's something on a guitar a guitar and a bass we don't typically do our left hand and our right hand typically are working in harmony right you know, so often of the way so that that is excellent now um, when when you're going on doing these live shows now um are you kind of doing a, a breadth of of your catalog or, or what uh, what can we expect from the live sets Stuart.
0: The, uh, you know, I said, yeah, it's a great band, man. I've got Alex Foley on guitar from Testament
2: and Metal Allegiance.
0: And on drums, I've got, uh, Joel Taylor, who he and I did a bunch of work with, Franklin Bali He's also just been out recently on the road with Al Diniola, and he toured and recorded with Holdsworth Truth for years, as well as Yanni, if you can believe it. Super much, mm. mar- super great. So it, it's sort of like, you know, when I'm putting a, a song together, when I'm putting a live band together, I try to put elements and personalities that I think will mix well and certainly you know the wonderful thing is that Alex and I think only played was it the nothing the, was it the orbit woman in Pittsburgh or or spectrum or uh,
2: I saw you at uh, the graffiti
0: graffiti there you the go that's cl- right
2: that the which is unfortunately no longer there but that was uh, I I'm gonna guess ninety-nine, yeah, ninety-one. Yeah, it's been a while. yeah somewhere around the urge, if I recall correctly.
0: Yeah, so that's 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 uh, twenty. Yeah, was, I mean, that's fifteen years ago, and you know now we're or 20, twenty-five years ago, and now we're playing again together, and we're both much better, right? So, uh, Alex, you know, went back and studied jazz, but he he's still this it more than anyone, and Joel can join the conversation when needed, and also just lay it down with a great funky groove and has mm-hmm. a wonderful music vocabulary so yeah we got some you new know, tunes from the new weapon we do uh, the, the, the extended jam version of loosening the set of diamonds and we do the book of lies and uh we do some hits and i let the boys you know play out of their own spots to keep them happy and uh mm-hmm. yeah man we had a great uh tour of the west of the east coast earlier this year and uh we're doing these little shows and then we're doing a little west coast run leading up to the nam show and uh,
2: then we'll awesome. take
0: it from there. But yeah, they're just they're great, great, great yeah. guys to play with, and, uh, and it sounds
2: awesome. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Hopefully, in 2016, we'll get to see you back out this week Absolutely. Any uh, any inkling of ever doing another uh, BX3 show?
0: Man, that was just uh, so much work, you know. And 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 Jeff and Billy are, are busy dudes, you know.
1: Yeah. And, and
0: I'd like to say that. You know, all the money that I made from that tour was worth all the extra hassles I had over them. You know, as being the organizer, as far as emails and phone calls. But I can't actually, sure. but I can't actually say that. So uh, <laughs> I'll be much more inclined if someone called me up and said, "Here are the dates. Here's your ticket show up and play." But you never know. You know, it sure was fun, and we've all changed. So I'll, I'll bet there's one more in somewhere down the road.
2: Fantastic. Well, Stuart, it's been a pleasure, and I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Hopefully we'll see you soon, man.
0: Well, I hope so, man. Thanks a lot for taking the time, and I'll see you all in Pittsburgh.
1: Mmm.
2: a little of sleigh ride from Stu Ham back from an old compilation Christmas album uh, that I dug out of the archives. Uh, it was great to have Stu on the show. We really appreciate him. And again, you can go to his website, check out his tour dates. Uh, if you're on the east coast of the United States or central United States, he's got some shows in the early part of December. If you're out west, he's coming to you in January. So hopefully we'll get a more extensive tour and see him in our region soon. We're going to turn our attention now to a band uh, that kind of formed out of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra mold. The band is called the Wizards of Winter. We're joined by Fred Gora, who is the lead guitarist. Now, the TSO, uh, obviously in his formative years, there were some people who kind of splintered off into the Wizards of Winter. Uh, we're going to talk to Fred. They are coming to the Carnegie Library Music Hall of Munhall, which is outside of Pittsburgh, on December 13th. I get a chance to see them there in a more intimate setting as opposed to the console where you're used to seeing this type of music. Um, From my listening, uh, very similar types of music, um, kind of progressive rock uh, renditions of some classic Christmas songs, some original music, uh, some great musicianship, uh, which is I think what really draws a lot of the rock fans into bands like the TSO and the Wizards of Winter. Uh, But it's not music that'll ostracize uh, your your wife, your girlfriend, your kids, uh, your mother-in-law, whomever you want to take to the show with you. So it's a really cool kind of fusion of all that stuff. So without further ado, let's talk to Fred Gora of Wizards of Winter.
1: of winter we have fred gore on the line i don't i'm fantastic thanks hey um you guys are coming in um you're obviously launching into full holiday mode uh and coming into pittsburgh on december 13th to do a show at the carnegie uh library of homestead wanted to get you guys on the uh on the show to kind of introduce pittsburgh to what what you guys are all about so how would you describe what it is you do? You know, I, I know how I would describe it, but I like to kind of give
3: you. Um, I guess I would. I would just give the best description. I would. I would give it as uh, like a Christmas rock opera. It's. Uh, it's a little more of a show than just a regular concert. We have uh, the original narrator from Trans Siberian Orchestra, Tony, and, and he tells a story throughout the the show that that ties the songs together along with the storyline and and it, it kind of takes you on like a mystical ride into christmases from different uh different times and different places and it's it's, it's pretty neat it, it, it ties it all together in a, in a nice story it, it's a little a little closer to a broadway show than a concert but uh
1: mm-hmm.
3: i i guess probably christmas rock opera would be the the best description i could give
1: it right now do you guys write original music in this or is this mostly kind of progressive rock versions of kind of traditional songs? No, uh, that's
3: probably the, the main difference that, that we've gotten, uh, with TSO, because obviously we, we have a, a substantial TSO influence, um, I'm a big fan of TSO, but, uh, where they take a lot of, uh, traditional songs and turn them into rock stuff, we have a lot of, uh, a lot more original compositions that are, it's like, you know, okay, this is a new Christmas song. It's not, uh, jingle bells done in a rock and roll style. Now, we do right. do some of that. Uh, we've taken, you know, the, some, some old Christmas, uh, classics or some classical music and turned it into rock stuff just because it's so cool and it's so good.
1: Mm. But,
3: um,. I would I would say it's probably 60, 60% completely original, you know, no, not something that was written 300 years ago that we turned into a Christmas song.
1: Right. Now, do you guys do exclusively Christmas and holiday, you know, or with the name of the band, I'm sure you're somewhat limited in what you can do. I know the TSO has kind of delved into other things. Um, do you guys kind of tell her more towards holiday stuff?
3: Right now, yeah, it's pretty exclusively Christmas. We're out for six weeks, uh, but that is a short window to to kind of reach everybody. So we are tossing around the idea, maybe doing a Christmas in July thing or doing something that's completely not Christmas related during the off season. Um, we're still in discussions with that and, and uh, got some ideas for some songs and some concepts that we're thinking about, but uh, it's a matter of getting it all put together and, and, trying to get it on the, on the road and, and get it booked. We we've, we're considering it doing last year but we spent uh we started in March writing and recording and uh the new record, which uh took about seven months, but uh, to write it and record a brand new record is uh in seven months is, is a pretty good time. Uh there's a lot of a lot of bands that take a couple of years in order to do it and uh things just happened really quick for us this year. But it kept us busy all year for sure.
1: Now, do you guys have a pretty cohesive lineup? I, I don't, you're you mentioned the TSO and they've obviously got a very fluid group in East and West and uh, things like that. I mean, do you guys have kind of a core band and then bring in voices and things like that? Or how does that work for you? We're, we're we're pretty
3: core. Cool. We've, we've had um, pretty much the same members for a few years. We've, we've had a couple, we had a couple of turnovers earlier on. Um, and we kind of did have a, we've been out with five previous TSO guys um, but right now we have Guy and Tony uh, that are our permanent members of, of our band, and and it's it's pretty uh, pretty static lineup right now. It's not a lot of turnover. Where okay, you know, we're going to get two new guitar players next year, and then get two new guitar players the following year. Uh, TSO obviously has a much bigger production. They have uh, two touring troops out at one time. So uh, I, I guess you know. It, you know, the musicians that they have, sometimes they get busy with the bands that they're with and they can't do it or GSO wants wants to change it up. I am not sure what their dynamic is.
1: Right. Now, um what what kind of backgrounds are the musicians? I mean, do you guys come from? I and mean, obviously there's some obvious classical chops in there and there's very progressive to music. Where do where do you guys come from? Is, is I think they, that's the good thing about us because we we have a, a, a
3: variance of different backgrounds. I come from a, a rock and metal background, playing guitar, as does T.W. the other guitar player. Uh, Scott is is uh, very influenced by Sticks and E.L.P. and Rush and things like that. And he's the keyboard player. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
3: Natalia is a classically trained violinist from Belarus, so uh, Steve is uh, a monster bass player, he plays a, a seven-string bass, and uh, he's very influenced by uh, Deep Purple and Rush and things like that, so we have a a wide variety to choose from. Sharon is a classically trained flautist, and, and so uh, it's you know, it we it it makes for an interesting mix. Sometimes there's some push and pull when we're writing, but uh, mm. that's just I I think that always works out for the better. I, the way I look at when you're writing, you're creating something. Music is art, and and art is at its whole. It's it's very emotional. So, you know, you start putting something together, and and you'll know, you'll get you know pretty strong opinions in certain areas. But it it usually is for the better. It makes it a better song, and and uh, we're extremely proud of the new CD.
1: Yeah, speaking of the, of the new album, Magic Winter. I mean, did you guys, when, when you go to put this together, I mean, were you collectively writing in you know kind of a rehearsal space, or, or do you guys kind of work separately and bring ideas to the table and kind of piece it together in the studio, or how do you how do you go about writing some of these complex? Yeah,
3: it's a good question because we it, it would be really difficult to get twelve people together to write a song
1: because
3: it's kind of like herding cats. It's almost very difficult to get something done. Um, So typically we would get together, um, a few of us, say me, Scott, Steve, Sharon, the drummer, T4, Tommy. And Scott would have an idea. More More often than not, Scott would have an idea. Or I would have an idea and say, hey, you know, what do you think of this? And then, okay, maybe we should do this here. And we would try it out and get the pulse of the song together and sometimes it would work really fast. We had one or two songs that came together in literally hours. So those were
1: always the special and ones. Then, you can do it that another easy.
3: Song,
1: yeah. Another song
3: it took us six weeks to put together. So uh, it, it, it really depends on the song and, and what's going on with it. But uh, yeah, I, I would say we probably for the whole for the whole album we you know we got together four of us and then brought it everything to the table and show the rest of the band, you know, this is what the new song's gonna be like.
1: Uh, do you when you when you put together an album, I mean and you're performing this, you mentioned having a narrator, do you have kind of a cohesive theme throughout the album that you have to work around?
3: Um, we try not to constrain ourselves too much because I don't I don't want the songs and we don't want the songs to suffer mm. to because they don't have to go in a certain order for the for the storyline, you know, the way they appear on the album. We do want to have it kind of grab a concept. And, and pretty much the concept of our live show is, you know, you're on a mythological journey through a snow globe, and, and you know, you shape the snow globe, and you're in a different time and place. Mm. So the good thing about that is that the story can never get stale, because we can go anywhere and anywhere at any time. Right. You know, kind of like Doctor Who for right. Christmas. Um, you you know you could go on forever and ever and there's there's a, a never-ending combination of places and times that you can go to. Right. And I hope that's not too deep for you, but
1: <laughs> no, no, I was I was afraid to use the word concept because uh, you know, sometimes musicians get very nervous about that word, and even fans I think sometimes get nervous of concepts because sometimes you think of an album where songs are shoehorned into a concept. You know the lyrics may, you know, be wedged in to fit the
3: story but may not fit musically and you know so I, I That's very true and I to, and I have to be honest with you, coming from more of a metal background, I wasn't really that big into the conceptual and it yeah. took some convincing for me to to grasp onto that because I can remember early on um making the set list and, and, and hearing, oh no, that song can't go there because it it disrupts the storyline. And my response honestly was nobody's gonna care about the storyline and then as we toured it, I realized, wow, they really do care about the storyline, and, and and I think it's a little it's it's a little different because Christmas carries a lot a lot of emotions with it, um, sure. it it and it's not always just happy and pleasant and sugarplum fairies. There's there's some dark sides to Christmas. Some it, sometimes it's a horrible time of year for people, and and we don't ignore that. We we kind of welcome that, and and I had. I think I had an epiphany because I I met a, a gentleman when we were playing in Boston a couple of years ago. It's a photographer, super nice guy. I won't say his name because of his family, but, uh, he came up to me and told me how affected he was by the show. And, and he was fighting stage four cancer, uh, right at the holidays. And, and, you know, he really enjoyed the show and how affected he was by it. And, and it really made him take a look at things a little bit differently. I stayed in touch with him afterwards. And, uh, he passed away in, in February of the following year, and I was I was hit pretty hard by it, and uh, I think that kind of made it, it it kind of solidified it in my mind that yeah you know what the storyline does mean something so Scott obviously won that argument for sure <laughs>
1: yeah and that, you're right about that though with with some concept albums like I know you know as a metal fan myself Operation Minecrime was always one of my favorites and exactly. exactly you know the the first album I think of went so much this concept but. I never cared that much about the story. You know, it made the videos a little more interesting than the usual dancing around that bands did, but it yeah, was just a slamming album. You know? It was
3: cool to know that it was a concept album, but I, I was never that blown away by the actual concept of it. You know, I, I could put on Man War Battle Hems and, and absolutely love it. And, and maybe not have to think too much about what the concept was and, and right. help, you know, Slayer Rain and Blood or, and just, Turn it up yeah. as loud as it can go, yeah. oh, that, yeah. that's and school that's the school that I came from. Not not necessarily, you know, the uh, the conceptual of the seventies, like like everything yeah. had to tie in and, and tell a story. Right,
1: exactly. And, and we all know what Kiss did with the Elder. Um, so. Yes, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Concepts can, can be scary if, if they're not done well. So that's great. Now live visually. I mean, do you guys take it to the extreme that the tso does i mean the tso speaking of kiss is probably only rivaled as far as pyrotechnics uh, yeah you no, guys...
3: we don't and even if we could afford to i don't think we would um obviously we can't afford to they they go out i believe it's five or six million dollar light show that they have and uh right. that's pretty substantial um we're a little more subdued. Of course, we you know we have some vertical fog machines and some tracer lights and stuff like that because it is Christmas and you can kind of get away with it. Right. Uh, and we want it to be visually pleasing, but we're we're not anywhere near the point where the light show is is out doing the music. And uh, right. I'm not saying that's what TSO does, but the, their light show is definitely something that people. Look forward to. It. So I wonder what they're going to do now. And I, I think I would be afraid to do that because I, I, I would be afraid that I think you know if we're doing it for twenty years like TSO is doing, everybody expects it to be bigger and more bombastic every year, and you kind of paint yourself into a corner.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's become somewhat of, of a liability almost in, in their case because you can't do the same show year after year after year visually because there, there are people that come to see that, and I know it's, it's an audience member, you know, you come, you see the snow and, you know, the fire and all this stuff. But if it's mm-hmm. the exact same thing year after year, you're kind of asking yourself, well, why do I want to do it this year?
3: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it, and and kind of the big thing is, oh, I wonder what it's going to look like, you know. And they're their unveiling is kind of, you know, when they're at the rehearsals, a couple of people take some snapshots of of the trusses. And this is kind of what, what the new light show is going right. to look like. And this is what the setup is going to be. And there's a tease there. And Paul O'Neill's brilliant. You know, yeah. what he's done with, with Trans-Siberian is just, you know, you know almost unparalleled. Um, but again, I'm, su- I'm sure he sits up at night going, how am I going to top that one?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I know from interviews I've done with members of the band, it, it is a big concern. You know, you've got to worry about going here and there to see the, the newest, latest, coolest lights and effects and things like that. Yes, exactly. exactly. I mean, this... The stress of that, quite frankly, has got to be overwhelming sometimes to constantly outdo yourself visually. Um, you know, when you're a musician, you know, if if you guys were professional lighting designers mm-hmm. and effects artists, then, you know, that's what you do. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we come to see you guys play guitar and the flutes and the mm-hmm. drums and things like that. So, so you guys are rolling in. Um, this is an evening with show, so it's just a pretty long set you guys do. Yeah, it's it's uh I don't know
3: the exact time. It's uh, a a little over 2 hours and there's okay. a uh there's an intermission in the middle. So, okay. you know, people can go do what they need to do or get a refreshment or whatever. Um it's a, I think it's a good time. It's it's a it's a good good length. We've We've actually gone out and done, you know, three, three hours plus sometimes. And that tends to be a little much to ask of an audience, you know, to have them sit still. Because a lot of our audience, they bring, you know, the family, the kids and stuff like that. I, I I would be very hard pressed to get my kids to sit down for three hours to watch somebody on stage. Yeah, and you're asking an awful lot from a listener, but it's very hard when you when you love your music so much to go. Oh, we not we can't do this one. So you just kind of gravitate yeah. towards let's throw them all in. You know what I mean? Yeah. But Absolutely. you know, we've got two we've got two full length CDs of our own out, so we can't possibly do all of the material. And of course, we want to pay to TSO, so we do I believe four TSO songs along you okay. know, with those set lists.
1: So here's some ones that you might hear on the radio. That's fantastic. Yeah, I and mean, you are great point about that. I know I took my kids to a DSO show about two years ago, and it is, I mean, as cool visually as it is, it's a lot for a kid to consume to sit there that long and to sit still and, you know, watch the explosions and things like that. I mean, it's cool, but it, it does get a little bit long sometimes with the intermission and the two complete sets mm-hmm. that they do. So it's yeah, good to have that whole of your one. audience.
3: Yeah, so we we find you know I, I think the first set might be an hour and ten, and then the second set's an hour, something like that. It's it's I think it clocks in at about two two hours ten minutes, which is good. You know you can you can ask people to sit down and watch it for an hour, then have a little break, get a refreshment, come back and watch another hour. Yeah. Second set's a lot of fun. Um, we bring out some surprises and stuff, so it's it, it goes over really well. The, we started off in Florida two weeks ago and. uh the response we've been getting is—it's pretty much blown me away. It's—it's it's been really, really positive, and we're excited to bring yeah. it to Pittsburgh.
1: Awesome, Fred, Do you have uh, do you have musical uh, things outside of the Wizards? I mean, do you do um, other bands, or is this strictly your your full time job with it?
3: Right now, it's, it's it's the only thing that I've been able to do for the past year. I, I like to play, you know, all the time. Um, and I've been in a, a bunch of different bands. I was in a, a metal band that, that toured Europe and stuff like that. But this year doing the record, it kind of, it, it was all encompassing. It was a Christmas in my house from March until mm-hmm. right now. And, and my family have blessed me with, uh, putting up with this for so long. Yeah. But uh, yeah, maybe after this year, uh, it, depending if we start writing another record, I don't know if we're going to do another record by the f- by next year's tour, or if, or if we'll just change the show up a little bit and, and you know showcase some of the music, some of the other music that we haven't showcased this year from the two records. Uh, and if that's the case, then I have some time to you know even if I just get up with a cover band and, and make some noise, it's always fun. I love to play, and, and I'm not the same person if I'm not playing.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. It's got to be hard to stay off stage for 11 months of the year. So certainly understand that. Well, Fred, I I wish you all the best. We'll see you when you get into town December 13th at the Carnegie Library of Homestead, and and we look forward to catching the show.
3: Well, thank you for having me, John. I appreciate your time, and I I look forward to getting to Pittsburgh uh, very soon.
2: Again, December 13th, Carnegie Library Music Hall of Munhall. Uh, You can check or of Homestead, technically, I suppose. Uh, you can check out the Wizards of Winter. They'll be doing a show there. And also, uh, Stuart Ham. I want to thank him again for coming on the show and joining us. Hopefully, we'll be able to catch him in the Western PA market sometime in 2016. Uh, you can contact us at ironcityrocks.com, ironcityrocks at gmail.com if you want to email us. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are all the appropriate URL slash ironcityrocks. We'd love to hear from you we are giving away some tickets uh, as we get into the month of December for some shows. Always uh, great to have interaction with the uh, people who listen. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you like, don't like. Uh, we love it all. So I want to thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.